What a complex saga full of intrigue and retribution. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'm discussing the first half of March's book The House of Spirits by Isabel Allende. So I've read up to chapter seven, The Brothers. Now I've removed any swear words. There is some mention of rape and underage sex that occurs in the novel and there are also murder details. Please check the content of the novel before proceeding. So the book opens with a wonderful Pablo Neruda poem. How much does a man live after all? Does he live a thousand days or one only? For a week or for several centuries? How long does a man spend dying? What does it mean to say forever? Now that really reminds me of For Whom the Bell Tolls. Remember episode 29, Robert Jordan questions whether it's possible for a man to live a life in a day. So the novel opens, the narrator is using the notes of Clara, I don't know who the narrator is yet. Clara is 10 years old and she says that she's writing this 50 years later to write an account. Now the book opens with this wonderful scene at a local church where there is a vicar conjuring up all these images of what will happen to sinners. Now Clara's parents called Severo and Nivea, they have very political ambitions. Nivea, Clara's mother, reflects on her children, especially her oldest daughter Rosa, who is sometimes called the beautiful. She's engaged to Esteban, a minor who has been away for two years. This is a description of Rosa the Beautiful, quote, the tone of her skin with its soft bluish lights and of her hair as well as her slow movements and silent character all made one think of some inhabitant of the sea. There was something of the fish to her. If she had had a scaly tail she would have been a mermaid but her two legs placed her squarely on the tenuous line between a human being and a creature of myth. Now they live in the capital of Chile although it's not explicitly stated. Rosa is busy with a huge embroidery and although Severo would like her to learn some domestic skills, Nivea, quote, preferred not to torment her daughter with earthly demands for she had a premonition that her daughter was a heavenly being and that she was not destined to last very long in the vulgar traffic of this world. Now, in church, Clara says loudly, quote, if that story about hell is a lie, then we're all effed, aren't we? Remember the vicars talking about what will happen if they sin. Now this causes their father to promptly remove the family from the church with Vicar Arestrepo commenting that Clara is possessed by the devil. She does appear to have magical powers. Suddenly I feel I'm reading a magic realist book. Quote, the child's mental powers bothered no one and produced no great disorder. They almost always surfaced in matters of minor importance and within the strict confines of their home. It was true there had been times, just as they were about to sit down to dinner and everyone was in the large dining room, seated according to dignity and position, when the salt cellar would suddenly begin to snake and move among the plates and goblets without any visible source of energy or sign of illusionist trick. Nivea would pull Clara's braids and that would be enough to wake her daughter from her mad distraction and return the salt cellar to immobility. Clara is also able to predict earthquakes and predicted her brother Louis being tossed by a horse, hence his lameness. Now I wonder if these mental abilities of Clara are going to increase. 
Marcos, who's Nivea's brother, is delivered to their front door dead. Quote, she had buried him once before. Intriguing. He's an explorer type who used to impress the family with his gathered objects from around the world. He was in love with his cousin Antonietta, but she married a diplomat. Heartbroken, he went on a trip around the world and returned with an aeroplane. He flies off with great fanfare and, quote, the sprinkling of holy water. But he is lost and a sealed coffin is returned later. After the funeral, Marcos returns saying that his plane was lost and he walked back on foot. Now, Clara is delighted at this. She clearly loves her uncle. He buys a crystal ball, which is basically a boy from a fishing boat, and he becomes a clairvoyant, believing he may be able to capitalise on his niece's gift. They go into business together and it's a roaring success. Ultimately, they decide it's, quote, a job for swindlers and abandon their trade. And they're obviously very principled people. He dies on his final trip and his body is returned alongside a dog, barely alive, called Barabbas. Hence the name from the opening sentence, Barabbas came to us by sea. Longfellow, who, quote, like most Englishmen, was kinder to animals than to people, had looked after Barabbas, perhaps even more than Marcos. We hear a charming history of the big dog. And then we have a new section of the book narrated by Rose's mining fiance, Esteban. We learn that, quote, each idle moment meant many a century away from Rosa. He describes how he fell in love with her when he saw her enter a sweet shop with Clara. He calls her Rosa the Beautiful, proper nouns. And it's interesting how a poor, uneducated man like the narrator can end up giving such a detailed and eloquent description of this story or this part of this story. I wonder what his journey is. He treats her like a goddess. He follows her so he knows where she lives and bombards her with letters and licorice because that's what she was buying in the sweet shop with her sister and uses the servant called Nana as a go-between. He decides that because he's poor and wants to support her, he'll chance his luck on a mine loan. Quote, I vowed to extract the last gram of precious metal, even if it meant I had to crush the hills with my own hands and grind the rocks with my feet. For Rosa's sake, I was prepared to do that and much more. Then we've gone to a new section and back to this omniscient narrator, which could still possibly be Rosa's betrothed, perhaps. Severo is invited to be a Liberal Party candidate. Clara predicts a death in the family and it's Rosa that's dead. Dr. Cuervas finds poison in some brandy. So we've got a big question here. Rosa is a child, why would she drink poison? Surely the poison brandy was for the father. Now he's quite high up in politics. Now, after the death, Severo and Nana drink sherry together. And I'm thinking, really? After Dr. Cuervas has only just discovered enough poison, quote, to kill an ox in the brandy decanter? You guys are either very brave or very stupid. Rant over. Now, we learned that it was rat poison that killed Rosa, the same poison that was in the gift of brandy to Severo. Cuervas concludes to his assistant that, quote, this was meant for Severo. And it would appear that way. Severo recalls Clara's prediction. He feels guilty that he should be the dead one and turns his back on politics, which is, quote, a trade for butchers and bandits. Now, there's a period of mourning for Rosa. At this time, political assassinations were rare and poisonings were done by, quote, whores and fishwives. Although investigations took place, they couldn't work out who delivered the poisoned brandy. 
quote, veiled accusations were made against the oligarchy and it was asserted that the Conservatives were even capable of this act because they could not forgive Severo Deval for throwing his lot in with the Liberals despite his social class. Let me go back to the miners' narrative, Esteban. He discovers a seam of gold. Finally, he'll be able to afford to marry Rosa. And then he hears of her death and is devastated. He returns haggard to see Rosa one last time before she is taken to the funeral, drawn by, quote, six plumed chargers. They are very rich. He thinks, quote, damn her, she slipped through my hands. They say I shouted, falling to my knees beside her, scandalising all the relatives, for no one could comprehend my frustration at having spent two years scratching the earth to make my fortune with no other goal than that of one day leading this girl to the altar and death had stolen her away from me. He goes on, tall and thin as I was then, before Ferrell's curse came true and I began to shrink, I must have looked like some dark winter bird with the bottom of my jacket dancing in the wind. Now, there's a question there. What is Ferula's curse? Ferula is the narrator's sister, Esteban's sister. He pines for her at the mortuary, helping her on the way to the afterlife. Intriguingly, he says, quote, I couldn't know that years later I would see her once again for a fleeting second, just as she was then with orange blossoms in her hair and a rosary in her hands. So we've got this big question. The narrator mentions he'll see Rosa again. How's he going to see Rosa again? We go back to the night that Cuervas did the post-mortem. Clara spies them and he also spies the assistant kissing Rosa's dead body inappropriately. Will that have any ramifications? We then go into a history of the minor narrator Esteban. His father died, leaving them in poverty. Ferula, his sister, is looking after their sick mother Esther. She sacrificed marriage for her. Quote, she took pleasure in humiliation and in menial tasks since she believed that she would get to heaven by suffering terrible injustice. Now Esteban dreams of having a posh coffee and when he does and he accidentally breaks the glass, Ferula, his sister, berates him. Quote, that's what you get for spending mama's medicine money on your private little whims. God punish you. And at that moment, Esteban saw clearly the ways his sister used to keep him down and how she managed to make him feel guilty. Now, Esteban decides to move to the country to the abandoned family home, Trey Marias, believing money can be made with land. Quote, it's the only things that's left when everything else is gone. Ferula is jealous of his freedom. She, five years older, is confined to look after their sick mother. And just as he was desperate to try that expensive Austrian coffee, he chooses luxury and congratulates the British on inventing first-class carriages to lift him above the hoi polloi. Listen to this, quote, He decided that from that day on, no matter how tight his circumstances, he would always pay for the small comforts that made him feel rich. Now, he arrives in San Lucas, which is where Trey Malleus is, and recalls going horse riding here. Quote, In his childhood, before his father slid utterly into ruin and abandoned himself to alcohol and disgrace. Now, his abandoned family property called Tremarias lies desolate and run down. He's going to take it over and he's going to make it much better. Quote, he went from one room to another, noticing how time had worn everything away and the poverty and dirt. And it seemed to him that this was a hole far worse than the mine. The kitchen was a wide, filthy room with a high ceiling and walls blackened with smoke from the wood and coal stoves mouldy and in ruins, the copper pots and pans that had not been used for 15 years, apparently untouched in all that time, still hung from their nails. 
The bedrooms had the same beds and huge wardrobes with full-length glasses that his father had bought long ago, but the mattresses were a pile of rotten wool in which bugs had nested for generations. The narrator continues the description of this decrepitude. Quote, for a second he was tempted to pile his two bags back on the car and return whence he had come. But he rejected that plan in a flash and resolved that if there was anything that could alleviate the grief and rage of Rose's loss, it would be breaking his back working in this ruined land. Now he becomes the patron. He tells those who want to stay that they must work hard, but they will get food. I really hope he doesn't turn into a Pedro Paramo character in his rage at Rosa dying and become an oppressive and violent patron. Fingers crossed. Watch this space. He works hard and he teaches the peasants skills from books in order to make the property habitable. He looks back on his life and thinks he was a good patron. Then we move from this first person narration to the omniscient narrator and things are less rosy. Esteban decides he does need a woman and his eyes settle on Pancha Garcia. Now, remember, this is the third person narration. This is not Esteban narrating. Pancha Garcia is the sister of Pedro Garcia, who is a worker on his ranch. He takes her as a lover against her will. Quote, he attacked her savagely with unnecessary brutality. And later in the novel, he admits to raping peasant girls. It's turning out to be quite a despicable character. We learn his father, quote, gambled away his mother's dowry and inheritance, and he tries to set up a school for his workers, but he can't employ a teacher. We also learn that Pedro, the worker on his ranch, dislikes Esteban. Before he had arrived, quote, he's been used to being respected, giving orders to making decisions. And this all goes when Esteban arrives. When Pancho becomes pregnant, Esteban loses interest in her and takes a stable girl as a lover. Quote, Pedro Garcia saw his patron whistling on his way to the stables and he shook his head in wonder. He's evidently disgusted by his behaviour. He continues to take all the young women as lovers and he even commits murder. Quote, the peasants hid their daughters and clenched their fists helplessly because they could not confront him. Esteban Treva was stronger and he had impunity. Twice, the bullet-riddled bodies of peasants from other haciendas were discovered. There was not the shadow of a doubt in anybody's mind that the guilty one was from Tre Marias, but the rural police simply recorded that bit of information in their record book with the tortured hand of the semi-literate, adding that the victims had been caught committing a theft. What a nasty piece of work. He is turning into Pedro Paramo. Now, when the priest recommends giving the peasants a decent salary rather than, quote, slips of pink paper, because the patron would buy things wholesale and then resell them at cost to his workers using these voucher system. It, at first, it functioned as a form of credit, but it gradually, quote, became a substitute for legal tender. Anyway, the priest recommends giving the peasants a decent salary rather than these slips of pink paper. And I'm just thinking, what a cruel employer. He doesn't believe in any form of socialism, as we saw earlier. Quote, Unfortunately, the only thing that really works in these countries is the stick. And this is Esteban thinking. This isn't Europe. What you need here is a strong government with a strong man. It would be lovely if we were all created equal. But the fact is, we're not. Of the matter, they're useless, even for running errands. He goes on with a two-page rant, muttering to himself, quote, 
As I've always said, they're like children. There's not one of them that can do what he's supposed to do without me there behind him driving him on. And then they start in on me with the story that we are all equal. It's enough to make you die laughing. The omniscient narrator goes on, quote, and he would have none of that monstrous talk about everyone being born with the same rights and inheriting equally, because if that happened, everybody would go to hell and civilization would be thrown back to the Stone Age. Now, he sends money to his mother and sister, but doesn't visit them. He ignores all the children that appear that are quite clearly his, and he only admits to Pancho's son being his, quote, whose mother was definitely a virgin when he had possessed her. The rest of them might or might not be his. They're his thoughts. Remind you of anyone? Pedro Paramo. Anyway, Treba frequents the brothel and has a favourite called Transito Sota. He dreams of Rosa. There's such resonances with Pedro Paramo in this book and his love of Susanita, who, like Rosa, dies. Now, the next day, he receives a telegram from his sister telling him his mother is dying and she wants to see him. So he leaves the operation of the ranch to Pedro Garcia and takes a train to the city. And then we move back to the Val family, Severo, Nivea, little Clara, now 10, and Nana, the servant. Clara has decided not to speak and the family try all kinds of remedies. She is removed from the convent school and is homeschooled. Her clairvoyance skills are impressive. She can predict deaths, weather, etc. And she can move the keys of the piano under the piano lid. Nivea tells her amusing stories of her family, like one of suitors who had to climb the tree in the garden to prove their worth. They obviously had a very close relationship. Listen to this, quote, Clara's relationship to her mother was close and cheerful, and Nivea, despite having given birth to 15 children, treated Clara as if she were the only child, creating a tie so strong that it continued into succeeding generations as a family tradition. I'm not sure exactly who the narrator is yet. Quote, it is a delight for me to read those notebooks from those years. It's definitely not true, Aber, because on Clara's 19th birthday, she finally speaks, since she's had a premonition, and says that she's to be married, quote, in the uproar about Clara's regaining her voice, they all forgot what she had said, and they did not remember until two months later when Esteban Treba, whom they had not seen since Rosa's funeral, showed up at the door to ask for Clara's hand. No, Clara, please don't do it. He's a rogue. It's not going to end well for you. We skip back in time a few months now. Esteban is in the city visiting his dying mother. On her deathbed, she tells him to get married, which he promises to. A few days later, she dies. So Esteban, now 35 years old, goes to Nivea and Severo to ask for Clara's hand in marriage. She's now 19. Now, this is the only people that he knows and knowing they accepted him as a suitor of Rosa the Beautiful previously so he's hoping it will work. He's also pretty rich now so the prospect for him and them should be good. They let him know she's slightly strange and I'm thinking what about all those children in Trey Marias that he's fathered? Is he going to mention that? I doubt it. However I have faith in dear Clara and it looks as though she knows exactly what she's doing. After their meeting the narrator says quote he did not know that she had seen her own destiny, that she had summoned him with the power of her thought and that she had already made up her mind to marry without love. So we've got a prediction here. Does she know he won't survive and she will be able to inherit his fortune maybe? Now, after the engagement party, Barabbas, the dog, appears with a knife in his back, quote, tracing the zigzag of a wounded dinosaur. I like that little analogy. The guests leave. Now, who could have done this? Mm, someone against 
Esteban has a grudge, perhaps. Hmm. But aren't they far away? My suspicions are on Pedro Garcia, who hates Esteban. Remember, he took his young sister as a lover and was a really tough patron. Let's see. Let's see if we find out. Now, Tereba builds a massive house for he and Clara. Quote, crowned with feathers, his one concession to patriotism, he could hardly guess that that solemn, cubic, dense, pompous house, which sat like a hat amid its green and geometric surroundings, would end up full of protuberances and incrustations of twisted staircases that led to empty spaces of turrets and small windows that could not be opened, doors hanging in mid-air, crooked hallways and portholes that linked the living quarters so that people could communicate during the siesta, all of which were Clara's inspiration. Every time a new guest arrived, she would have another room built in another part of the house. And if the spirits told her that there was a hidden treasure or an unburied body in the foundation, she would have a wall knocked down until the mansion was transformed into an enchanted labyrinth that was impossible to clean and that defied any number of state and city laws. But when Treber built the house that everybody called the big house on the corner, it bore the stately seal with which he managed to stamp everything around him as if in memory of his childhood privations. Now that description reminds me so much of the Winchester house in California. There'll be more on that later. Ferula, Esteban's sister, considers Clara, quote, completely helpless. Clara, as if reading her mind, tells her that Ferula will live with them. Quote, we will be just like sisters. Ferula is overcome with emotion, unused to such tenderness. Clara is proving to be manipulative. She's manipulating Ferula into another position of servitude. Or am I being very cynical here? She's proving quite clever so far. Now they get married and Clara becomes pregnant and they have a daughter called Blanca. Clara goes to Tremaris as she's keen to see the country and Blanca and Pedro Garcia's son, I'm going to call Tetero, he's called Pedro Tetero Garcia, but I'm just going to call him Tetero so you don't get too confused. They get on famously. They're found one night hugging each other. Quote, many years later, they would be found in the same position and a whole lifetime would not be long enough for their atonement. Hmm, intriguing. Why do they need to atone? Now, at this point in the novel, I'm feeling Esteban is having things too easy. He is going to have to, at some point, atone for his sins, surely. Now, as I'm thinking these thoughts, coincidentally, these sins are listed, quote, everyone, the peasants at the ranch, that is, could appreciate that he had stopped going to the Red Lantern, that's the brothel. His nights on the town, his cockfights, his gambling, his violent tantrums, and above all, his bad habit of tumbling girls in the wheat fields were a thing of the past. This they attributed to Clara. Now, Clara teaches the peasant women about the rights of women, and this sets off a tantrum in Esteban. But after he calms down, Clara, quote, inattentive as ever, asks him if he can wiggle his ears. I'm waiting for him to be properly punished. Come on, Clara. Now, Ferula, the sister, hates staying in the country, unlike Clara. She even complains that Blanca is not able to play with anyone of, quote, her own class. Ferula is proving to be quite classist, and there's quite a lot of classism in this book. But she doesn't want to leave Clara and return to the city on her own. She clearly has a deep love of Clara. Quote, 
Ferula did not want to be separated from Clara. She had come to adore the very air Clara exhaled. And even though she no longer had occasion to give her baths and sleep in the same bed with her, she found a thousand ways to express her tender feelings. And to this she dedicated her existence. Now we move to Esteban's point of view. Clara is heavily pregnant with twins. Esteban goes to a brothel and meets Transito Soto. He persuades her that she should open her own business since she seems dissatisfied working for others. Esteban and Transito make love and Esteban says that he only mentioned Transito because, quote, she plays an important role in my life later. I wonder what important part she is going to play in his life later. Now, Severo and Nivea die in a car accident. Esteban tries to keep the accident a secret from the heavily pregnant Clara but she has a premonition that Nivea was decapitated and goes out to find the head. She does, and this prompts the birth of her twins. Clara and Ferula hide the head in a hat box because of the scandal a reburial might create. <sighs> this is very strange. And then three sisters appear, the Mora sisters. They've discovered Clara due to a psychic link, and she sometimes becomes more distant to Esteban because... Ferula tries to drive a wedge between Esteban and Clara. And her distance frustrates Esteban. Quote, he fell asleep exhausted, his heart on the verge of bursting in his chest. But even in his dreams, he was aware that the woman sleeping by his side was not really there. She was in some unknown other dimension where he could never reach her. One day he returns after an earthquake to find Ferula in bed with Clara, trembling with fear. This enraged Esteban and he sends her away. In turn, she puts a curse on him. So this is the curse of Ferula mentioned previously. Now, there's a plague of typhus that infects the city and Clara helps the pawn, but not Esteban, no. He doesn't believe in any kind of socialism or social justice. More on that later. We learn that young Pedro Tertero has communist ideas that Esteban abhors. Now remember, Pedro Tetro is the lover of his daughter, Blanca. Pancha dies of a fever that Pedro Garcia fails to treat correctly, for example, including making her eat cow dung. That's not gonna work. There's a lot of phony science in this book. I have a natural aversion to this, so I'm trying my best to keep it together. Then we go into the story of Blanca and Tetro's romance. They watch a horse being born and Blanca tells Tetro that they will be married and live together. But Tetro is not convinced. Quote, he knew his place in the world. Ferula returns to Clara's family home after six years and shocks everyone. Nothing is said and she exits, whereupon Clara says, Ferula is dead. Another one of her premonitions, I guess. Clara, with this premonition, goes to Ferula's house and the narrator beautifully enumerates her trinkets in her favourite style and Clara thinks, quote, no one has ever loved me as you did as she arranges her clothing and tends to the body. Now, Esteban continues to feel estranged from Clara, quote, he despised her spirit of sacrifice, her severity, her vocation for poverty and her unshakable chastity, which he felt as a reproach toward his own egotistical, sensual, power-hungry nature. Blanco and Pedro Tachero continue to burn with love for one another, sending letter after letter to each other. He writes songs for her and we learn that, quote, 
His voice had acquired a hoarse, passionate timbre that would one day make him famous when he would sing songs of revolution. Lots and lots of foreshadowing in this novel. Now, Pedro Tetro sings a song about a group of chickens who organised to defeat a fox. Esteban, who hates socialism, overhears it and berates him. And later that year, quote, Esteban whipped him before his father because he brought the tenants the new ideas that were circulating among the unionists in town. Ideas like Sundays off, a minimum wage, retirement and health plans, maternity leave for women, elections without coercion, and most serious of all, a peasant organisation that would confront the owners. Blanca and Pedro Tercero meet in secret and there is a very brief paragraph on Jamie and Nicholas who have been sent to boarding school. Now, remember, Jamie and Nicholas have hardly had any say in this novel so far. That is Clara and Esteban's two sons. They've just been carted away, haven't heard a thing about them. Now, Clara foresees an earthquake and one duly arrives. The narrator enumerates its features. More on that later, the enumeration. Esteban is injured and Nana is killed. Quote, none of the many children she had raised with so much love attended her funeral. She really is snuffed out without any memorial. It's very heartbreaking. Esteban becomes more and more alienated from Clara, who seeks solace in the friendship of Pedro Garcia. Now Blanca and Pedro Tejero continue to see each other alone in secret because Esteban hates Tachero for his socialist views. Blanca learns how to make clay figures and her nativity scenes become popular in the local area. Tachero continues to write socialist songs and his father notes that, quote, when he heard other people humming the song about the hens and fox, he would smile at the thought that his son had made more converts with his subversive banners than with the socialist party pamphlets he so tirelessly distributed. Now we go to Esteban's point of view. Just after the earthquake, he talks of how distant Clara has become and of his daughter Blanca, who wants to stay in the country and not move back to the city. Again, there's no talk of his two sons. It's so strange. They almost seem to be written out of the novel. Esteban talks of how he tries to bed Clara. And it's actually quite thoughtful and expressive writing, not the style of writing I expect from this horrible, raping, lecherous and abusive man. He plans to go into business farming chinchillas for this French noble called Count de Satigny that comes into the novel. Clara can't stand this man's airs and graces and the way he treats the animals he farms, even though he's rich enough not to need work. And he makes that fact really clear. The Count asks for Blanca's hand in marriage. Esteban is delighted, but Blanca, in love with Pedro Tachero, is obviously outraged. Now, we do hear about the twins. Finally, Jamie is keen to be a doctor and Nicholas has a love of the occult and clairvoyance, but, quote, had not the slightest talent for it. Now, who is this narrator who believes in all this stuff? Anyway, he instead meets a woman called Amanda, whom he falls in love with, who gets him into acupuncture and yogic meditation. Now, old Pedro Garcia dies Quote, at his feet was his great-grandson Esteban Garcia. Now, this is the son of Esteban Garcia, who was a product of the rape of Pancho Garcia by the original Esteban Treba way earlier in the book. Confused? It is a bit confusing. All these similar-sounding names is very confusing. There's three Estebans. Anyway, the quote continues... This little boy, Esteban, was 
by that time almost 10, driving a nail through the eyes of a chicken. He was the son of Esteban Garcia, the only bastard offspring of the patron name for him. No one knew his origin or the reason he had that name except himself, because his grandmother, Pancha Garcia, had managed, before she died, to poison his childhood with the story that if only his father had been born in place of Blanca, Jamie or Nicholas, he would have inherited Trey Marias and could even have been president of the Republic if he wanted. He's then found about to stick a nail into his great-grandfather's eye before Blanca stops him. This little Esteban has a big grudge against Esteban Chueva, and he sounds slightly unhinged. Quote, The child would lie awake at night imagining all sorts of dreadful illnesses and accidents that could put an end to the life of the patron and his children so that he could inherit his property. Trey Marius would become his kingdom. He nursed these fantasies throughout his life even though it was evident he would receive no inheritance. And the fact that he's doing horrible things with those nails makes me think that he's very capable of some horrible retribution on Esteban Treva and his family. In fact, the narrator foreshadows that he would be the instrument of, quote, a tragedy that would befall the family. So we have a question. What tragedy will little Esteban Garcia cause to the Treva family? Now, there's a funeral attended by many for old Pedro Garcia. The Garcia men discuss voting for a socialist government. Now, Jean, the French count, continues to woo Blanca, even though she's not interested since she's in love with Pedro Tercero. He follows her in secret to one of her midnight trysts and reports his findings to Esteban Trueba, who rides out on horse and grabs Blanca as she's walking home, injuring her in the process. When he rails against Tetro's class to Clara, she says Blanca has done nothing wrong. Quote, you also slept with unmarried women, not of your own class. The only difference is that he did it for love and so did Blanca. Tell it like it is, Clara. He hits her and Clara leaves the city and, quote, never speaks to Esteban again. Now, Pedro Garcia leaves too, saying that, quote, I don't want to be here when you find my son. I hope he's going to protect or warn his son, though, that this crazy man Esteban Treba has it in for him. He has it in for him not only politically now, but also because he's in love with his daughter and he's of a different class. We go into the first person narration of Esteban Treba. He has such hatred for Tetro, whom he thinks has caused all his problems. Quote, Pedro Tetero Garcia was the one to blame for everything that had happened. Because of him, Blanca had left me. Because of him, I had fought with Clara. Because of him, Pedro Segundo had left the hacienda and the tenants looked at me with hatred in their eyes and whispered behind my back. He had always been a troublemaker. What I should have done was kick him out at the very beginning, but out of respect for his father and grandfather, I let things go. And the upshot was that the insolent trash took what I most loved in the whole world. I went to the police station in town and bribed the guardsmen to help me look for him. I ordered them not to lock him up, but to turn him over to me without any fuss. In the bar, the barber shop, the club, and at the Red Lantern, the brothel, I let it be known that there would be a reward for anyone who delivered him to me. One day I was in the hallway smoking a cigarette just before the siesta when a dark little boy appeared in front of me and stood there silently. His name was Esteban Garcia. He was my grandson, but I didn't know it. Only now, with all the terrible things that have happened at his hand, have I learned how we were related. He was also the grandson of Pancha Garcia, a sister of Pedro Segundo, whom I have to admit, I don't remember. 
I don't remember. He doesn't remember raping 15-year-old Pancha Garcia and naming her son after him. It seems very unlikely. He is in denial. And in exchange for an unspecified reward, he agrees to tell Esteban where Tertero is hiding. And Esteban gets a gun to kill him, but he fails, leaving a wounded Esteban to flee, minus three fingers. Young Esteban Garcia asks for the due reward, but is refused by Esteban Trueba. Quote, There's no reward for traitors, I snarled, and furthermore, I forbid you to tell anyone about what happened, you understand. Bad move, Esteban Trueba. Little Esteban Garcia, who seems to have psychotic tendencies, remember him nailing that chicken eye, he's going to get payback. Anyway, there ends the first half. Wow. Thoughts. A dense and complex family saga. We're only halfway yet. Pancha Garcia has already had a grandson. Esteban is obviously going to get massive retribution, I'm hoping, for all his wrongdoings. Clara gave him a pretty easy time, but I don't think either Tetro or young Esteban Garcia will be so lenient. I have to say, I'm finding it quite a tough, long read. Perhaps I'm not naturally a fan of these long, drawn-out family sagas, and I do feel like I don't really know the characters that well. Even though they've been described with such beauty and realism, I feel like I haven't really bonded with any of them. I haven't yet seen the workings of their soul. To put it short, I'm not in love with any of these characters in terms of rooting for them and truly understanding their deepest, darkest, innermost motives and wants. Yes, I know Blanca wants Tertre and I know Clara wants a quiet life in the city away from Esteban, but I don't feel I really know what makes any of these characters tick. I don't know what their ultimate goal is. Or is my mind just being a slave to Western goal-oriented ways of thinking about novels? But a novel does need a goal, right? It's just not a series of interesting and perhaps funny facts laid out one after the other. I kind of get the feeling that this book is all about that. Just a series of funny or interesting anecdotes laid out one after the other, enumerated. I can't see where it's all going, but maybe that's the point. Life doesn't necessarily have to have a goal, does it? It's just one instant followed by another. Anyway, does that make any sense? What do you think? Are you rooting for any of these characters? Ultimately, I'm waiting for this big retribution on Esteban for his former sins, and it's a bit of a waiting game. So, question. Why would she drink that poison? Surely the poison Brandy was for the father. Well, we know why she drank it. It was just a mistake, but we don't really know who put that poison in the brandy. Lovely to have some kind of closure on that story. And the narrator mentions that he'll see Rosa again. How is that? How will he see her again? Will he die, maybe, in the next part? And remember, I predicted that Clara knows that he won't survive and she will be able to inherit his fortune. Let's see if that prediction comes true. We also got that question, who murdered the dog Barabbas when it came into the engagement party with that knife in its back, walking around like a dinosaur? Who did that? I'd like to find that out. Why do Blanc and Pedro Titro need to atone? What's going to happen in the second part to cause that? And what important role does Transito play in Esteban's life later? I'm very interested in finding out what's going to happen with that. What is going to happen to the illegitimate son that arose of the rape of Pancha Garcia, Pedro Garcia's sister? Well, we know that he's given birth to Esteban and that he's got it in for Esteban Garcia because he didn't get a reward and we've got that question, what tragedy will little Esteban Garcia cause the Traber family? 
some very interesting ideas and questions to come up. There's a lot of magical thinking in the book. Clara is able to manipulate objects and predict earthquakes. And Uncle Marcus, remember, sells, quote, pink, green and blue papers so clever that they always divulge the exact secret wishes of the customers. And then we have that interesting talk about dowsing by Pedro Garcia. Quote, he taught them how to search for water. You have to hold a dry stick in your two hands and walk tapping the ground in silence, thinking only of water and the thirst of the stick. Until suddenly, sensing the presence of moisture, the stick begins to tremble. Very magical thinking. And Esteban's bones are fixed by a blind worker. The doctor says he couldn't have done a better job. Again, quite unscientific thinking from the narrator. We've got this idea of Rosa being from another world. She's described like a mermaid. She has this strange green hat. I think that means blonde hair. I think green maybe refers to the, her, the blondness of her hair. She reminds me a little bit of Clara, actually, because Clara, later on in the novel, is defined as otherworldly. When Rosa dies, Severo and Nivea recall, quote, days when Rosa scampered in the garden, startling the butterflies with her beauty that could only have come from the bottom of the sea. Now, throughout the book, we have the idea of class struggle and agrarian reform. Quote, no one's going to convince me that I wasn't a good patron. This is Esteban thinking. Anyone who saw Tre Marias in decline and who could see it now when it's a model estate would have to agree with me. That's why I can't go along with my granddaughter's story about class struggle, because when it comes right down to it, those poor peasants are a lot worse off today than they were 50 years ago. I was like a father to them. Agrarian reform ruined things for everyone. Now, agrarian reform was the redistribution of farmland to help peasants. It sounds to me like Esteban has quite conservative stance like her father to them, seems quite patronising. And later in the half, he asserts his views on socialism. Quote, Is it just for everyone to have the same amount, the lazy the same as those who work, the foolish the same as the intelligent? Even animals don't live like that. It's not a matter of rich and poor, it's a matter of strong and weak. I agree that we should all have the same opportunities, but these people don't even try. It's very easy to stretch out your hand and beg for arms, but I believe in effort and reward. Thanks to that, I've been able to achieve what I've achieved. I've never asked anybody for a favour and I've never been dishonest, which goes to prove that anyone can do it. I was destined to be a poor, unhappy notary's assistant. That's why I won't have these Bolshevik ideas brought into my house. Go do your charitable work in the slums for all I care. It's all well and good, good for building the character of young ladies, but don't start coming in here with the same half-cocked ideas as Pedro Tetro Garcia because I won't stand for it. A very different view from Clara who gives to the poor. Now, Tetro recounts this tale, quote, one day the old man Pedro Garcia told Blanca and Pedro Tetro the story of the hens who joined forces to confront a fox who came into the chicken coop every night to steal eggs and eat the baby chicks. The hens decided they had enough of the fox's abuse. They waited for him in a group and when he entered the chicken coop they blocked his path, surrounded him and pecked him half to death before he knew what happened. It goes on. Pedro Tetra spent the whole evening absorbed in thought, ruminating on the story of the fox and the hens, and perhaps that was the night the boy began to become a man. I wonder if these socialist ideas will win out over this very conservative view of Esteban Trueba.
Now, the narration is interesting in this book. We've got this first person versus this more omniscient narrator that's working from these diaries. The first person, Treva, narrator, looks fondly on his life, saying that, quote, Whenever I think back on those days, I feel a great sadness. My life had gone by very fast. If I had to do it over again, there are a few mistakes I wouldn't make. But in general, there's nothing I regret. Yes, I've been a good patron. There's no doubt about it. This is very different to the omniscient narrator who highlights Esteban's evils with no sugar coating. Quote, Treba continued polishing his reputation as a rake, sowing the entire region with his bastard offspring, reaping hatred and storing up sins that barely nicked him because he had hardened his soul and silenced his conscience with the excuse of progress. I mentioned that the house on the corner of the street is a bit like the Winchester house. Listen to a little bit of the history of the house on the corner. Quote, Once the spirits announced that there was a hidden treasure beneath the chimney, First, she, that's Clara, had the wall knocked down and then, when it was not found, the staircase and half of the main sitting room. Still nothing. Finally, it turned out that the spirit, confused by the architectural alterations she had made to the house, was unable to detect that the hiding place of the gold doubloons was not in the Traver mansion, but across the street at the house of the Ugartes, who refused to demolish their dining room. Now, I was very lucky to visit the Winchester Mystery House when I visited California. It's a house in San Jose. I'll quote from Wikipedia. Quote, The personal residence of Sarah Winchester, the widow of firearms magnate William Vert Winchester. The house became a tourist attraction nine months after Winchester's death in 1922. The Victorian and Gothic-style mansion is renowned for its size and its architectural curiosities. It is sometimes claimed to be one of the most haunted places in the world, but there is no evidence to support this belief. Much of the law regarding the Winchester house and its owner is fanciful, unverified and often probably false. Now, interestingly, my wife heard a tale that she listened to on the radio that Actually, instead of spirits speaking to Mrs. Winchester or her trying to appease the guilt of her husband making firearms, it was actually to employ the local population, the local building population. So she would keep renovating to keep the local population in employment, which is a lovely heartwarming tale, but one that I think the people trying to sell tickets to go into the Winchester house maybe don't mention. I mentioned Rose's otherworldliness um, like a mermaid. We also have that with Clara. As I mentioned, Clara, quote, Clara found everything so lovely and who was as happy to eat truffles as she was to have leftover soup, to sleep in a feather bed as to sleep sitting up in a chair or to bathe in scented water as not to bathe at all. As her pregnancy advanced, she seemed to be distractedly letting go of reality and turning inward in a secret unceasing conversation with her baby. She seems completely at peace with herself. And then later, when Esteban wants to control her, quote, Clara seemed to be flying in an airplane like her uncle Marcos, unmoored from land, seeking God through Tibetan sciences, consulting spirits with a three-legged table that gave little jolts, two for yes, three for no, deciphering messages from other worlds that could even give her the forecast for rain. Very similar, those two, Clara and Rosa. Now, the details in the book are very interesting. It's a little bit like looking at closely knitted tapestry. And we have all these enumerations as well. Listen to this description of Tetro and Blanca's exploits together. Quote, they spent the summer reading among the rushes, the river, the pine trees in the forest, 
and sprouting stalks of the wheat fields, discussing the virtues of Sinbad and Robin Hood, the bad luck of the black pirate, the true and edifying stories from the treasury of youth, the worst meanings of the words that did not appear in the dictionary of the Spanish Royal Academy, the cardiovascular system and illustrated plates where you could see a man with no skin and all his veins and arteries exposed for all to see, but wearing underpants. Within a few weeks, the boy had learned to read voraciously. They entered the wide, deep world of impossible stories, gnomes, fairies, men stranded on islands who eat their comrades after casting their fate at dice, tigers who let themselves be tamed for love, fascinating inventions, geographic and zoological curiosities, oriental countries with genies in bottles, dragons in caves, and princesses held prisoner in towers. Such enumerated little details pepper this book and give it the feel of... Someone, me, peering through a microscope, looking at beautiful details on this lovely tapestry. Not a huge amount is going on, but we're seeing loads of details. When I say not much goes on, it's really like an explosion that goes nowhere. Or you have a action and no reaction. Or a cause and no effect. For example, Ferula's love for Clara doesn't really go anywhere. Nivea being a radical feminist politician, she ends up being decapitated. Nothing really happens with that. Clara screaming in church doesn't really seem to have much of an impact, apart from the priest saying that she's possessed. Esteban's cruelty hasn't been dealt with yet. Maybe it will come. The poison brandy that kills Rose of the Beautiful. That hasn't been dealt with. What happened there? We had this amazing action. There's, there was no real reaction. We didn't find out. Even the father was ended up drinking from his alcohol, even though it was clear that it might be poisoned. And Rose the Beautiful, why was she cut off in the prime of life? There must be a reason for that. And those children Nivea and Severo had, those two boys, where are they? We don't see any interesting ramification. Is it just me? I feel like the novel is this catalogue of damp squibs. That's harsh. I know some of you may think that's a bit too harsh, but what do you think? Did you feel that too? Is there a lot of fireworks, but without any spectacle? I did mention that there was quite a lot of classes. And remember Ferula, Esteban's sister, complained that Blanca could not play with anyone of her own class. And listen to Nana, she's classes as well. She's talking to Pedro Tetro. Quote, it's time you learn to stay with your own class instead of nosing around senoritas, she said between clenched teeth. There's some really nice descriptive passages. I like this one about the earthquake. Again, huge amount of enumeration, but listen to this. Clara felt the ground shake and was unable to keep her footing. She felt her knees. The tiles on the roof gave way and crashed around her with a deafening roar. She saw the adobe walls of the house crumple as if they had been chopped with an axe. And then the earth opened just as she had seen it in her dream, and an enormous crevice formed before her, swallowing the chicken coops, the laundry troughs, and part of the stable. The water tank swayed from side to side and smashed the ground, spilling a thousand gallons of water on the few surviving hens, who flapped their wings desperately. In the distance, the volcano began to shoot flames and smoke like a furious dragon. The dogs broke loose from their chains and raced madly up and down. The horses that had survived the collapse of the stable stomped the air and neighed in terror before bolting off into the open fields. The poplars teetered like drunks and fell with their roots in the air, crushing the swallows' nests. Most terrible of all was the roar coming from the centre of the earth, that hard-breathing giant that was heard at length, filling the air with fear. So all in all, I'm looking forward to getting some of those 
answers in the second half of the book. I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, One Day in the Life of Yunnan Denisovich, translated by Ralph Parker. There's some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads, and I'd love to share some of them with you. TK421 wrote a letter to Solzhenitsyn. Dear Mr. Solzhenitsyn, I'm not a Russian scholar, not even in the armchair variety, but you have done something magical in one day in the life of Evan Denisovich that eclipsed this reader's ignorance. You have transmuted what it was like to live a life day in and day out in much the same fashion. Think about it. Morning, the same as yesterday. Afternoon, the same as yesterday's afternoon. The night, yep, the same, and this made me yearn for a day when Ivan would awaken and see that it would be different. This ability to create a life of perpetual recycling was heartbreaking and so real that it made me think of not only Russian dissidents, political or otherwise, but of all the people incarcerated now in prisons, relationships, loneliness, jobs, or to a certain degree, aimless lives. To think that every morning is going to be bleak when one awaits sleep, mortified and numbed and haunted my thoughts as I read this novel. Add in the fact that Ivan never knew if more time was going to be added on his sentence or if he was going to die in this desolate gulag. I had a real hard time distancing myself from this character. I live a very happy life. I have a wife I love and adore and two beautiful children, a house, a career. At times I would trade this. Always a full stomach, clothes, cable, thousands of books and countless friends. But even with all these pleasures, the thought of being isolated in a world where insubordination was met with violence or worse, disappearance, became my mental reality, trapping me in this world that you created. Dark thoughts permeated throughout my mind like a giant shark searching for prey and ate my happiness. Rarely has such a deft, short novel made such an emotional impact on me. This uh, is why you are one of my favourite authors. It's interesting the impact that it's had on him compared to me. I, I really felt such optimism from his words. And for TK421, it seems almost the opposite. It ate his happiness. Thank you so much for that interesting review. Lisa said, quote, his most well-known work describing one single day in the life of an inmate in the Soviet Gulag quite miraculously was approved for publication in the Soviet Union in 1962 and played a major role in the decision to award Solzhenitsyn the Nobel Prize in 1970. As a harrowing, cold, sharp witness account of the suffering of Gulag prisoners, it is a document of universal importance. It does for Soviet history what All Quiet on the Western Front does for the history of World War I, depicting the experience of one protagonist in a sharp realism that makes the reader shudder. I felt cold. I felt hungry. I felt scared. I felt harassed. I felt helpless. I felt hopeless. I felt powerless. I felt humiliated. Every single emotion described in the book immediately transferred to me and made me live through this one particular day in the gulag, very much like the soldier in All Quiet on the Western Front. The prisoner does not have time to be worrying about the political system that placed him in his living hell. His sole focus must be to get through the day and then wake up the next morning and face it again, constantly fighting the biological needs of his body. The repetition of the suffering is the hellish part of the story made crystal clear in the heartbreaking final sentence. Quote, the end of an unclouded day, almost a happy one, just one of the 3,653 days with sentence from bell to bell, the extra three were for leap years. For the reader suffering through the one single day in a reading chair with a cup of hot tea and shortbread and a warm blanket was hard. The unimaginable reality of the real prisoners is summed up 
and the accurate count of how many of those days they lived through, not forgetting the three extra for leap years. Imagine reading this story 3,653 times and it would still be much more comfortable than living it. And don't forget that you only have to deal with one of the unclouded, almost happy days. And you don't have to die in the end after years of suffering like the hero of all quiet on the Western Front, who lived through the trench warfare reality, only to die in October 1918, a completely unimportant random detail in the big scheme of things. One day in one life, but there were so many days and so many lives. Solzhenitsyn received the Nobel Prize, quote, for the ethical force with which he has pursued the indispensable traditions of Russian literature. This was already perfectly outlined in one day and then shown in magnificent parable in the cancer ward where different individuals from a variety of political and social backgrounds find themselves with a disease that destroys them from within. There's nothing they can do to prevent it from happening. The gulag is one symptom of the symbolical illness that spread in the Soviet Union. A must read for people interested in the connection between literature and history. Put on a warm jacket though, it's going to be a freezing cold. Thank you so much, Lisa, for letting me share that review of yours. And Henry said, quote, In cold, windswept Siberia, Ivan Denisovich struggles through another bleak day, a prisoner in the Gulag labour camp, one of millions. The time, 1950, the reason he's there does not matter. His crime invented, but the chill is real, and guards like their jobs pummeling the inmates. In fact, enjoy it. Often his frozen feet cause Ivan agony, still they must walk step by step, mile after mile, snow on the ground, the dull sky above and misery incessant to reach the work site. His gang, 104, his name, S854, a carpenter before prisoner, a carpenter before prison, today a bricklayer without pay, the eighth year of Shukov's endless incarceration, working hard to keep warm, fast and faster, he is the ablest man in his gang, the only real family Ivan Denisovich has, not the one back home. Survival the sole reason to get up from your bunk in the frigid barracks during the chilly morning. Too many did not. The little food given hardly enough nourishment as the stomach growls the 400 prisoners. Hence they steal and trade for any substance that looks like protein. Never think of the outside of the Siberian wilderness will always be his residence, either in the stockade or exile. This novel from Solzhenitsyn is quite autobiographical, telling the world about the Soviet's brutality and atrocities. The impressive writer shows a vivid atmospheric panorama, recreating the conditions in these inhuman camps where countless lives were lost and the people who suffered should never be forgotten. This great book will guarantee that, that will never happen as long as people read classics, and certainly this is in that category. There's something about Russian literature which is unique, the dark aspects notwithstanding, their words are so captivating. The subject may be unpleasant, yet the excellence is self-evident. Thank you so much, Henry and Lisa and TK421 for your comments on this wonderful novel. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages, which you haven't got around to reading. You just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I've discussed the second half of The House of Spirits in three weeks, that's the 31st of March. April's two episodes will be all about Treacle Walker by Alan Garner. 152 pages, published in 2021, and it was shortlisted for the 2022 Booker Prize. So get that one at the ready if you can. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your episode app. Thank you. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the last half of the House of Spirits in three weeks. See you then.